Amen. I'm going to start tonight in Matthew chapter 16. So if you want to turn your Bibles with me to that opening. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. We'll start in verse 13. When Jesus came under the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that you're John the Baptist, who was beheaded, of course, by Herod. Some say you're Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said unto them, But whom say you that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now the rock he's talking about is certainly the knowledge that Jesus is the Christ, and not Peter, thank goodness. I will, upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now this is right at the end of Jesus' ministry. It's uh, going to be a very short period of time, probably a matter of a week or so, before Jesus goes to uh, Jerusalem and uh, fulfills the, um, the work of the sacrifice by giving his life on the cross. And so it's interesting to me, a couple of things I want to point out here. Why would Jesus ask them who he was if they had been preaching that he was the Messiah? It seems to be an odd question at the end of Jesus' ministry. Now, I can get it if it was at the beginning. If Jesus comes on the scene, does a couple of miracles, and says, who, who do you guys think I am? That makes sense. But after two and a half years, much more than two and a half years, I guess, of Jesus ministering, doing signs and wonders and miracles. They've heard all the things that he said, didn't understand a lot of it. But even in those cases, they asked for clarification and he gave it to them. After all that they've been through and after all they've experienced, why would Jesus need to ask them, who do you say I am? It seems to me, at least in the way I used to think, it seems that um, that, that would have been the first and foremost thing that he would have gotten settled with these guys. Because remember, he sent them out to preach. He sent them out as his agents, emissaries, to go two by two to the cities that he hadn't been to yet. And yet, he still asked them, who do you say I am? Let's keep reading here. Jesus again says, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Verse 19. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now in the, in the most general sense I know to, to, uh, uh, to take, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, I believe those are interchangeable terms. There may be certain instances where the kingdom of heaven is talking about the, the literal place where God lives and it coming down to the earth and so forth. But for the most part, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are used as interchangeable terms. And in the, the broadest sense, a kingdom is a, is a territory. We think of it as a boundary on a map. But a kingdom is a, is a, uh, a place or a domain or a realm under somebody's control. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God would be the realm underneath God's control. 
Now, you may remember in uh, John chapter 18, I believe it is, Jesus is standing before Pilate, and Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate was asking him, are you a king? Because that was uh, the main accusation that the Pharisees were bringing against Jesus, trying to make him an enemy of Caesar so that the Romans would do their bidding and crucify him. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you a king? He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, my disciples would fight. But it's not of this world. He's talking about spirit of God, or the, the spirit realm being his kingdom. The kingdom of God is in the spirit. Also in Luke chapter 17, the Pharisees come before Jesus and demand of him when the kingdom of God should come. Now they're talking about when is God going to rule and reign on the earth? When is he going to take the yoke of uh, the Roman oppression off of the shoulders of Israel and so forth? And Jesus said that the kingdom of God doesn't come with outward show or with observation. In other words, he's saying the kingdom of God is not something you can see. He says the kingdom of God is within, inside you, inside you. So keep that in mind when Jesus told the disciples, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. He's got to be talking about the keys in terms of the spiritual kingdom of God. He's saying I'll give you the keys, but those keys can't be visible. Those keys have to be unseen. Those keys that we would understand unlocks or reveals everything about God's kingdom and everything in God's kingdom. But he's talking about unseen things, things that you can't see, things that you never will see. He's talking about things from the inside. Now notice the next verse. I'll give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on the earth shall be loosed in heaven. He's talking about unseen, invisible keys that provide authority. That has to be what binding and loosing is talking about there, doesn't it? He has to be talking about exercising authority. He's saying what you say goes. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. It starts with the earth. Whatever you loose on the earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, there's another translation that, I, that adds a little bit to this that I, I particularly like. Jesus, in that translation, said, and whatsoever is bound in heaven that you bind on earth shall be bound. And whatsoever is loosed in heaven that you loose on earth shall be loosed. In other words, it's saying that our responsibility, the responsibility to initiate binding and loosing, the exercise of authority starts here on the earth, but it's because something else has already happened in heaven. I like that. I like that. Because that way there's no misunderstanding on the part of man being able to do anything and everything that he wants to. Some of it may be even outside of God's will, but he has authority and so forth. It's telling us that what God has set the boundaries for in heaven can be exercised here on the earth. Verse 20. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Now, folks, I got to tell you, for a long, long, long time, really up until the last couple of years, I thought that the whole purpose of Jesus coming to the earth, certainly the purpose of him giving authority to his disciples to go out and, and preach, to go out and tell people about the good news, I always assumed that that was them telling people everybody they came in contact with that Jesus was the Messiah. But as we pointed out earlier, that wouldn't make sense with the questions that he asked 
at the end of his ministry, right at the tail end of his ministry. And here he says, don't tell anybody that I'm the Christ. I thought that's what the good news was. Then it says he took another step to bring them into a greater understanding. Verse 21, he says, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and to be killed and raised again the third day. One translation says, and the language bears it out, that he began to openly or plainly or clearly teach and tell his disciples that he's going to Jerusalem to be crucified and resurrected. This must be the reason that Jesus was, um, this must be the reason that Jesus upbraided his disciples for not believing after the resurrection. He's told them clearly. He spelled it out. He said, this is the way it's going to go. So much so that Peter, we won't read those verses, but the, the trailing, the following verses past what we just read says that Peter pulls him aside and says, no, Jesus, that's not going to be right. It's not going to go that way. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He realizes that Peter, in failing to recognize and accept the words that he said, Jesus said, is operating by the inspiration of the devil. Well, that's still true today for folks that reject the word. They may not have an evil heart. I don't think Peter had an evil heart or an evil intent. Peter just doesn't want to lose Jesus. But Jesus says that's operating according to the agenda of the enemy. So, here he is telling them that based upon the knowledge that he is the Christ, we will be given the keys to the, of the kingdom. His disciples will receive the keys of the kingdom for the purpose of exercising authority in the earth. But don't tell anybody that I'm the Messiah. And here's what's coming next. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, we're going to start reading in verse 9. Jesus said, after this manner, the disciples have come to him and asked him to teach him to pray. So he says, after this manner, therefore, pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Now, the kingdom he's talking about, it has to be the kingdom of God, doesn't it? So Jesus teaches them to pray for the kingdom of God to come. Well, we know Jesus wouldn't teach them to pray something unscriptural or contrary to the will of God, would he? So it must be, and it was in that period of time, the will of God for the kingdom to come. In other words, for a change to take place, for a spiritual kingdom, Jesus has already identified that his kingdom, which would be the kingdom of God, is not seen with observation or outward show or outward appearance, but it's within. It's a spiritual kingdom. So God had Jesus, the Holy Ghost inspired Jesus, to teach his disciples to pray the will of God concerning the kingdom of God coming on the earth. But what is that? I believe Jesus defines it in the next statement. Pray this, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in the earth as it is in heaven. I believe the kingdom of God is where the will of God is done on the earth like it is in heaven. He continues and says, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. 
And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. So Jesus identifies the kingdom of God as where the will of God is done on the earth just like it is in heaven. And that's exactly what he created in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. He created uh, an environment where things were on the earth just like they were in heaven. Where the will of God was done here on the earth just like it was in heaven. And it stayed that way until man fell. Until the introduction of sin and death into the earth, into the Garden of Eden. The earth was literally the kingdom of God. God was the creator of it. He was the dictator of that which would be done and how things were made. He determined by the, the godly counsel in Genesis 1.26 to give man authority, create man in his own image and after his likeness, and to give man authority here on the earth. How could he give man authority on the earth if it was not his to give? And if it was his to give, then it had to be the kingdom of God. So Jesus is talking about a, res- a restoration. He's talking about a return to what man has lost. Jesus concludes what we know of as the Lord's Prayer. It was really the disciples' prayer. It was the disciples' prayer for a short period of time while Jesus was here on the earth before the resurrection. He says, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Kingdom, the kingdom of God has to be associated with power and glory then. The Bible says that after man fell, he saw that he was naked and he was ashamed. In other words, there had to be some kind of clothing. Now, we know it wasn't animal skins. That's what God made for them after the fall. But apparently, they were clothed in some manner. I don't mean with fabric. But they were clothed with something. And we are only left to guess at what that something was. My best guess is that they were clothed with the glory of God. We know of situations where Jesus, for example, was transfigured on the mountain where Moses and Elijah appeared to him and talked to him about his, his death and his resurrection. The Bible tells us that he appeared in his glory. In other words, there was a, a brightness, an illumination that appeared upon Jesus. Well, the Bible tells us in the Old Testament when Moses came down from the mountain after being with God for 40 days and nights, Israel couldn't stand to look upon his face because of the brightness of the shining of his flesh. If that's what happened with, in the Old Testament, with a man who did not have the same righteousness as we do, how much more should the glory of God shine in those of us that have been reborn or recreated in Christ. So that's what leads me to think that there was some kind of clothing. The glory of God was their clothing. And when they sinned, that glory or that light went out. And they saw that they were naked and ashamed. Now we're still talking about the kingdom of God. Look with me to Luke chapter 9.
Well, I think it's in Luke chapter 9. Verse 1. Then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. I want you to notice that. He gives them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God. Now, folks, this is the early part of his ministry. It's probably after the first year, right at the end of the the first year of his three-year ministry and the beginning of the second year. He's operated on his own in the first year, doing signs and wonders and miracles. And now his disciples who have been with him for the better part of that first year, most of them at least, have been with him for the better part of that first year of his ministry. Now he commissions them to go do something in his stead or before him. He gives them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. Now notice what he sent them to do. And he sent them, verse 2, and he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and heal the sick. Well, right off the bat, we know that healing the sick is a part of the kingdom of God. Has to be. Well, that's the will of God, isn't it? I mean, in heaven, there's no sickness or disease. Everything in heaven has to be the will of God because he's the one that's in charge of it. There can't be any sickness and disease operating in heaven contrary to his will. And therefore, there is none because his will is always health. His will is always healing. And so Jesus sends them with authority and with power over devils and over sickness and disease. He sends them out to heal the sick and to preach the kingdom of God. Notice he's not, he doesn't tell them to preach that he's the Christ. He doesn't tell them to preach that he was the Messiah. Now, that came as a shock to me. I thought that's what they were doing. I thought they were going out and preaching the Messiah is here. He's on the earth. He's on his way here. And if you'll just believe that and believe our report about that, then we can get a head start on the power of God and heal the sick that are here. But that can't be right. The kingdom of God that Jesus told them to go preach had to mean something specific to them. For example, if we just said, all right, let's go out. We're going we're gonna to have a uh, reach the community event. Let's pair up, find somebody that's your spiritual buddy, and let's go out into the neighborhood and preach the kingdom of God. What would you say? I'm sure we get a lot of questions before we ever hit the door. Wait a minute. Now, what do you mean exactly? You mean tell people about Jesus? That can't be part of this. Folks, I believe it is exactly what we just read in Matthew chapter 6. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. They're preaching. God's will is to do things for you here on the earth, for man to have on the earth what he's provided for in heaven. Well, whatever they preach, whatever they say, or however they say it, it works. Skip down with me to verse 6. And they departed and went through the towns preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Healing everywhere. Now turn with me to Luke chapter 10. Verse 1. After these things, the Lord appointed another 70 also and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place whether he himself would come. He says, The harvest is great, but the laborers are few. 
Don't take any money with you. Eat whatever they set before you and go where, where you're invited to go. Verse 8, into whatsoever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you and heal the sick that are therein. Heal the sick that are therein. And say unto them, the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. He tells them to say, after he heals the sick, he tells them to say, the kingdom of God is near. That's what nigh unto you means. The kingdom of God is near. Now, folks, I want you to understand that just the close proximity of the kingdom of God provided healing power in the earth. Let's skip down a little bit in Luke chapter 10, verse 17. It says, And the seventy returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. Now, if you go back and read the previous scriptures and, and look at all the ones that we did not read, you won't find one mention, one inkling of instruction about devils. There's no mention of him giving them authority over evil spirits. There's no mention that he even commands them to cast them out when they find them. None. But these guys come back after having fulfilled what Jesus told them to do, which was preach the kingdom of God and heal the sick. The 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power, literally authority, to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power. Now, this is a different word. The second word, power, means ability. I give you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power, ability of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notice verse 20. Verse 19 tells us about the authority that they have to do the same work that the 12 did, and that is to go into all the cities and preach the kingdom of God, that God wants things to be for you and me here on the earth just like they are in heaven, and it brings healing power to those that will accept it. Now they return saying, Jesus, not only did we heal the sick like you told us to, but we found out that we've got authority in your name over evil spirits. So we know that they're using the name of Jesus. We don't know and have no reason to believe from what we've already seen in, in other passages that they're preaching that Jesus is the Messiah. But apparently they are making known that the name of Jesus has power over sickness and disease and now evil spirits. And so Jesus said, behold, I give you authority. Now, what was the, how do we know he gave it to them? Well, it'd be easy to say because of the results. But notice what Jesus is now doing. He's not saying, I'm giving you something extra that you didn't have. It wouldn't make sense for him to say, now that you've come back and done what I told you to do, now I'm giving you more. That wouldn't make sense. What does make sense is the authority that he gave them that uh, accomplished the healing of the sick and that accomplished the casting out of evil spirits. For him to be describing that does make sense. So when he says, behold, I give unto you authority, he's saying, here's what the authority that I've already delivered to you will do. Not just yesterday, not just in the places you went and came back from, not just tomorrow when you go into a new place, but all the time. Behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the devil, the ability of the devil, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notice what he says next. Notwithstanding. Notwithstanding. In this rejoice not 
that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Notice what he says. He says, don't get happy about being able to, to command evil spirits to leave. Now, I think that's a good thing. Wouldn't you agree? I think Jesus knows it's a good thing too. If he didn't know it was a good thing, he wouldn't spend so much time casting devils out of people that he came in contact with. There's no question casting out evil spirits, breaking the power of the devil over people's lives is a good thing. But notice what he's saying. He's saying, but a better thing, a more important thing, is that your names are written down in heaven. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean for us that the name, our names are written down in heaven? It certainly wasn't just for them. They couldn't even take part of the resurrection until after it happened. What does it mean, rejoice that your names are written in heaven? Isn't that another way of saying rejoice that you've been made righteous? At least in our application, it couldn't be in their application for a little while longer until Jesus is raised from the dead. But we've had it from the beginning. So could it be that he's saying the thing to rejoice about is that you've been made righteous? Turn back with me to Mark chapter 6. We read about the the Lord's Prayer. We read what he had to say in instructing them to pray. Let's get down a little bit in the chapter. Jesus is speaking about a, a number of different things. He starts speaking in verse 19 about laying up for yourself treasures in heaven instead of on the earth. He talks about no man being able to serve two masters. In other words, he's talking about your authority toward money, or your attitude, excuse me, toward money. You can't serve God in mammon, which is, stands for money. Verse 26, or verse 25, I'm sorry. It says, therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body, <coughs> excuse me, what you shall put on, is not the life more than meat and the body more than raiment. Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow, sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit to his stature? And why take you thought for raiment or clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they sow or spin. And I, yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore? If God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek, the unsaved, the lost, in other words. For your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of all these things. Verse 33, But seek ye first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow. For the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Notice what he says. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now in Luke's account... Of this story, he adds something to that. He says, fear not, little flock, it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Talking about the same things, talking about provision, talking about taking care of their physical and financial needs. He says, it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, which means provision has to be part of the kingdom of God too. 
Well, by the definitions that Jesus gave earlier in chapter 6 of Matthew, that makes sense. Because if the will of God is to be done here on the earth, just as it is in heaven, nobody's missing out or, or lacking anything in heaven, right? There's complete provision, there's abundant provision, there's eternal provision. So that has to be, if the kingdom of God is rightly defined by the will of God being done on the earth just as it is in heaven, that has to be part of the package, and it is. But notice what he said. He said, therefore, because God cares about you more than the fowls of the air and more than the lilies of the field, therefore, take no thought saying. Now, here's the point I'm trying to get to, folks. When Jesus said to the disciples, after they confessed that he was the Messiah, Jesus told them that they were blessed and that upon this rock, the knowledge of who he is, sent from God to the earth, he said, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What are those keys? What are those keys? Well, I've said in the past that the keys are the name of Jesus in the word of God, and that certainly has to be true, has to be part of what it is at least. But I think we can go a step further. Since the Bible says to seek the kingdom of God first and his righteousness, and his righteousness, and his righteousness, our right standing with God the Father. And remember in the beginning, Genesis 1.26, where God said, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness and let them have dominion over the earth. The dominion for the earth, God's plan for man was to have authority and dominion here in the earth. But he didn't plan that for fallen man. He planned that for righteous mankind. So when Adam and Eve were made in his image and after his likeness, God who is righteousness had to have made them in the image of him with righteousness or as righteous. So when Jesus says, don't rejoice because the devils have to obey you, rejoice because your names are written down in heaven, he seems to me to be pointing toward righteousness. Everything seems to be pointing toward righteousness. Now with that in mind, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 3, he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare, the weapons of our warfare. I want, to con I want you to consider something. What would be the difference between the weapons of our warfare or the illustration that Paul is giving us that we're in a spiritual fight, a spiritual battle against the unseen forces of the devil here on the earth? Not to say that he's not a defeated foe because he is, speaking of the devil. But he uses an illustration where he talks about battle and weapons. He says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. What would the difference be between the weapons of our warfare and keys of the kingdom of heaven? What would be the difference? The only difference that I can see is just the difference in the two illustrations. One's a battle illustration, weapons of warfare, and the other is an illustration whereby things are unlocked. Or authority is exercised so that your will is backed up by the forces of heaven because of what we've been given in Jesus Christ. Do you see the similarities? 
Do you see how they'd have to be at least, if not the same thing, at least close to the same thing? Let's keep reading. He said, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations or reasonings, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Folks, you know as well as I do that throughout the church world, there are reasonings, there are doctrines, there are logical arguments made by much of the church world, many in the church world, to discount healing for today, to discount the gifts of the Spirit today, or the power of God working in any significant way as he did in the book of Acts. We all know that, right? The Bible calls those high things. The Bible calls those imaginations. Any reasoning that is done by anybody or accepted from the devil as their own thoughts are establishing strongholds in their lives that block the power of God from doing what Jesus sent for it to do, sent it for to do. Anytime somebody tries to talk themselves out of, out of being filled with the Holy Ghost or come up with a reason why we can't all be filled with the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in tongues or we can't do the, the work of Jesus in healing the sick and casting out devils and so forth, those are high things, imaginations that have taken place in people's lives and in their minds to keep the power of God. The devil designed it to keep the power of God from working for you the way God sent it to work. In other words, it thwarts the kingdom of God from operating. It stops the power of God from operating. Now, if you're thinking, well, we can't take that as a broad, uh, with a, uh, you know, use a broad brush on that. It has to be a little bit more specific than that. I want you to look with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let's start reading with verse 3. Paul says, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. In other words, Paul is saying this. He's saying this is the way the devil works against people. He's talking specifically about how he works against the unsaved. He blinds their minds. He blinds their minds. Now, how does he blind their minds? It has to be through reasonings. It has to be through thoughts. It has to be through arguments trying to refute the good news of Jesus. Jesus or Paul said by the Holy Ghost, he said that the devil blinds people's minds to the truth. But he can't stop them from acting on the truth once they see it. How does someone who is blinded, has their mind blinded to the truth overcome that blindness, that spiritual blindness, to become a part of the family of God? Well, easy. Romans 10 says that they hear and accept the preaching, the good news of Jesus paying the price for us, dying in our place as our substitute. They believe in their heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead and they confess him as Lord. So what weapons of warfare or what keys of the kingdom do the lost use to overcome the kingdom of darkness is holding them back words words people are saved by words people are saved by hearing the gospel hearing the good news of what jesus has done for us accepting it 
and speaking words. Well, then how do you break through every other kind of stronghold? How do you break through every other kind of reasoning that's holding the power of God back, the kingdom power of God, or the power of the kingdom of God, I guess, from working and operating in your life? Words. What kind of words? Well, Jesus said, upon this rock, the knowledge that he's the Christ, he'll build his church. Now, I want you to look with me to three other scriptures real quickly. First, Colossians chapter 1. I want you to see the difference between the Old Testament prayer that Jesus taught the disciples to pray so that the kingdom of God would come. And, of course, they had to be praying according to the will of God. Jesus wouldn't tell them to pray contrary to the will of God in any way. But I want you to read with me the difference between the Old Testament prayers and the New Testament prayers given to the, uh, given to the church through Paul by the Holy Ghost. Verse 9. He says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That's another way of saying rightly dividing the truth. That you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, that it would have an impact on your life and your lifestyle. Being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. There's knowledge again. Paul's not praying that they would get something they don't already have. He's praying that they'll learn what it is they do have. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power and patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. Notice how that comes. It comes through knowledge. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, or chapter 1 and verse 2 it says, grace and peace are multiplied unto you through the knowledge of Jesus and God the Father. Verse 12, giving thanks unto the Father which has made us meet or able to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Notice he's made us able, but it doesn't automatically happen. It happens as a result of our determination to take hold. He's made us able to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Verse 13, who has delivered us, Jesus has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Turn with me now to Ephesians chapter 1. I'll get it. There it is. Verse 16. Paul says, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I want you to understand, folks, he's not saying I'm praying that God will reveal something to you. He's saying I'm praying that God will reveal to you who you have inside you. The spirit of wisdom and revelation is about who Jesus is. And who he's made unto us to be. Upon this rock I'll build my church. Notice Paul in neither the letter, letter to the Colossians nor to the Ephesians. Asks that God will give them something they don't already have. But rather to give them revelation in the knowledge of what it is they do have. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. He's talking about your spiritual eyes being opened. That you may know what is the hope of his calling 
And what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Remember Jesus told the disciples to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is, as it is in heaven. Paul wrote to the Colossians and said, Is it already here? Jesus has translated us, delivered us from the power of darkness, and translated us into the kingdom of his dear son, translated us into the kingdom of God. It's already here. Now that it's already here, it's about one and only one thing, and that is learning who we are and what we've been given. So that the will of God can be done in the earth, in your life and in my life, just like it is in heaven. He continues, verse 19, he prays that God will show us what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. He prays that we'll not only know the hope of God's calling through the knowledge of Jesus, but he prays that we'll know the extent of the power of God that works in us, which is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Think about that for a minute. All of eternity, all of heaven, all of hell was in limbo for one moment of time when God said, that's enough. The price has been paid. Then all the power in the universe was exercised to the raising of Jesus from the dead. He goes into the uppermost chamber of hell, preaches to those saints that are captive, the Old Testament saints that are looking for the Messiah to come. He comes back, picks up his body on the resurrection day, on Easter Sunday, picks up his body, tells Mary, don't touch me, I haven't been to the Father yet. Takes off, goes to the Father, comes back and says to the disciples, I'm back. And that power, that power that overcame the greatest power that there was available to the devil, the power of sin and death, that power, resurrection power, changed everything instantly. And that's the power that the Bible says is in you and me. One of the things that, um, well, has captured my attention here lately. is the healing ministry of Jesus. You know, the Bible tells us that the whole of the kingdom of God is like speaking words into your heart. Mark chapter 4 and verse 26. We won't take time to, learn, to turn there. But Jesus says the whole kingdom of God is like a man planting seed in the ground. He goes to sleep, wakes up, goes to sleep, and wakes up. He doesn't even know how it works. But the earth, meaning the spirit of man in the illustration, produces according to the seed that was planted in it. He said everything about the kingdom of God is that way. Everything about the kingdom of God is that way. So that means if everything of the kingdom of God works like that, sleep, eat, awaken. I guess that'd be awakening in the eat first, wouldn't it? But everything that we do is a part of our natural lives. All the time, the word that we've spoken is at work. That means that instant healings are not the norm. Now, thank God for them. I'm sure you'd give permission to God anytime he wants to to bring about, bring about an instant result just like I would. But that's not the norm. It wasn't even the norm in Jesus' ministry. There were a lot of people that were healed as they went, like the ten lepers, beginning to amend from that very hour like the nobleman's son and so forth. 
But when Jesus spoke to people, when Jesus spoke words, when, people, when Jesus used the keys of the kingdom of God that was available, not even yet present, but close, when he used words, things changed. Think about the blind men that came to Jesus. We don't know if their blindness was caused by a, a defect in the eye or the optic nerve or the connection between the optic nerve and the, and the brain. We don't know any of the, the, the particulars that doctors, maybe not doctors of their day, but doctors of our day might have told us that it was. But at the power of his word, physical things changed. And the Bible says that wasn't even resurrection power that caused those things to happen. The Bible says that resurrection power, the display of every bit of God's power and force and strength to raise Jesus from the dead. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm, saying it took, I'm not saying it took everything that God had to make it happen. Maybe it didn't. But the Bible tells us very specifically that all of God's power was on display when Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And that's the power that, that Paul said by the Holy Ghost is in you and me. Not just enough power, all of it. When Jesus walked on the water, what happened? Did the molecules of the water become solid? Or was the, was the, the force of gravity suspended? Or something else that I'm not smart enough to think of might have happened? What happened? The Bible doesn't tell us. It's almost like it doesn't matter. It just happened. And the knowledge that we have of the things that happened, just like Jesus speaking to the storm and calming the storm as well as other things, turning the wine into water, the knowledge of those things for us as they happened leads us to focus on the power of God that resides on the inside of us. Jesus walked on the water not in resurrection power, but in righteous man's authority here on the earth power. Jesus changed the water into wine, not by resurrection power, but by man's authority on the earth power, righteous man's authority on the earth power. Jesus didn't multiply the loaves and the fishes by resurrection power, but by man, righteous man's authority on the earth power. Paul says resurrection power belongs to us. Paul says that resurrection power resides in us. P.C. Nelson You've heard me tell about him some, perhaps. He was a, the most outstanding Greek scholar of his day. He was the second foremost scholar or expert on the Hebrew language, Bible Hebrew. And uh, just a few months before he died, before he went over into heaven, he was at a meeting talking to some younger ministers. Brother Hagin was one of them. And, uh, and he told about how that he had visited and attended a, uh, some meeting, some crusade, some campaign, uh, of John Alexander Dowie's ministry in times past. And he said this. Now, at that time, Dowie was already gone off the scene, and Dowie's doctrine was such that, uh, well, he got off track. He saw where the Bible talks about the messenger of the covenant, which was Jesus, but he began to preach that he was the messenger of the covenant. Well, he didn't live too much longer after that. When you step out of line and, and try to take some of God's glory, no matter how God has been using you and how the power of God is manifest, you just don't last long. In the Old Testament, if you intruded into the priest's office, you fell dead instantly. Under the New Covenant, you last a little longer. And he told this. 
And it, it, he told it for effect because everybody there knew the mistakes that Dowie had made. Everybody there knew where his doctrine got off and where he, uh, um, well, where he got off track. But he said this. He said, I was sitting, P.C. Nelson said, I was sitting in a meeting in a minister's group. He had a certain section on the platform reserved for ministers that were cooperating with the meeting and so forth. Brother Nelson said he was there. He said there was a lady that came up for healing, and she had a growth on the side of her head that was almost the size of her head. And it had it grown into her mouth and, and was attached to her sinuses and, and all this kind of stuff. In those days, apparently, they tried putting poison on growths and things like that to try to, to kill them. But in her case, that wouldn't have worked because the poison would have seeped into her system and would have killed her. So she had no hope, no medical hope whatsoever. And Brother Nelson said that he watched John Alexander Dowie when she told and explained uh, on the platform what the problem was and what her situation was and what the doctor's diagnosis was and all that other stuff. He said, I saw him reach up and grab a hold of this growth that was on the side of her face and rip it off. And he said... There were numerous helpers, ministry helpers up there on the stage. There were some doctors standing by that began to instantly examine her. And all of a sudden, I mean, he's holding this thing that he's ripped off her face. It's bloody. It's dripping. It's a gross type thing. But there was brand new skin where he had ripped it off. Brand new skin. He said this. He said, now I know this doctrine was wrong and you can't follow his doctrine talking about Dowie. He said, but you can sure follow the faith of a man like that. We look at people that do perform miracles, do spectacular things, and we think they must have something special. It's usually ministers that are in places like that or conditions like that. And so we think, well, maybe it's because they're called of God. Maybe it's because they've got something extra because they're called of God. But folks, every one of us has the same measure of the power of God, resurrection power on the inside of us. A minister doesn't have more resurrection power than you do. There's no such thing as more resurrection power. Resurrection power is the top. That's the most you can have. That's not the power that Jesus ministered on the earth with, but it's the power that he gave unto you and me in his name. What are the keys of the kingdom? Words uttered by righteous men and women based on the word of God in line with what God reveals is his will and his plan and his purpose. Those are the keys to the kingdom. I'm not taking away from the name of Jesus. Thank God for the name. Without the name, what would we have? But it's not just the name. It's the knowledge that we've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus and have been given authority here on the earth. They're the words that we speak. Maybe the best way to say it is God's words in our mouth. Those are the keys to the kingdom. And the gates of hell can't prevail or hold out against that. You've been translated into the kingdom of God. You're in it now. So am I. It's not coming anymore. It's not near anymore. It's here. Forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for your word. We believe he is the Christ. We know him as our Lord and Savior. We thank you that you've given us the keys of the kingdom too. We thank you, Father, that the gates of hell shall not prevail against 
us doing your will here on the earth. We rejoice in our right standing with you, Father. Not because the devils have to obey us. We rejoice because our names are written down in the book of life. Our names are written down for eternity as your children, your people, your servants. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you said each and every one of us could and should do the same work that you did here on the earth. To not only walk in health and victory, but to bring others into that same victory. Open our eyes, Lord, even as Paul prayed, we pray that the eyes of our spirits would be enlightened or opened, that we would know the hope of your calling, the righteous position that we have with you and all that it entails. We pray, Father, that you'd reveal to us the inheritance that we have in the saints in light. Join heirs with Christ. And, Father, we pray that you would reveal unto us the exceeding greatness of your power that works in us. The same power that you used when you raised Jesus from the dead. Father, we desire to be godly, righteous examples of Jesus here on the earth. So we accept your word to be true, Lord. No matter what it looks like, no matter how we feel, no matter what we appear to ourselves to be, we'll not let reasonings keep us from the truth of your word. We'll not let high things or imaginations brought to us by the evil one hinder us from the truth of who we are in, in Christ, who we've been made to be through the sacrifice of Jesus. We love you, Father. We ask you to use us. Show us people we can help. Show us people that are hungry and open to the things of God. That we can reveal to them that now because Jesus has offered his sacrifice as our substitute, we can experience the will of God here on the earth just like it is in heaven. We love you, Lord. We thank you for hearing and answering our prayer in Jesus' name. If you can agree with that.